We are in March, Missions Emphasis Month, and uh, always a great time uh, for our church. And if you've been here at the church when we have done this, or any church that has a similar focus, no doubt you have been reminded of, you've been challenged uh, to consider the Great Commission and to understand that it applies to all of us as believers, that uh, the Great Commission of Christ before he returned to his Father was not just for his original disciples there, that it's for all of his disciples, any who come to him and receive him as Savior and Lord. And most likely with that challenge, you've been challenged to uh, think of the fact that that means that every Christian then is a missionary. And that as a missionary... Every Christian should have a missionary heart. I'm sure you've heard that. I've probably said something like that. And, and uh, that concept is something that is probably pretty familiar to most of us, if not all of us. But what does that actually mean? A missionary heart. You know, that's kind of one of those, those phrases that we hear and we say and we even nod our heads in agreement But the question is, do we really understand what that implies? Uh, Do we really understand the weight of such a statement and what that involves and what is required of us? If, If every Christian is a missionary and every Christian should have a missionary heart, well then what does that mean for us? What does that mean that should be part of our heart? And I really believe the answer to that is that a a missionary's heart, what that means, is that it is compelled to pursue the lost with love and truth the way God does. A missionary's heart is compelled to pursue the lost with love and truth the way God does. So if you and I are going to have a missionary heart, Uh, then that must be true of us. That needs to be true of us. That we would be compelled, driven, to pursue the lost wherever we find them. Locally, here in our own community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, uh, at the state level, uh, in our nation, around the country, around the world, that wherever the lost are, which is everywhere, that we should have a desire to relentlessly pursue them with the love and the truth of the gospel the way God does with everyone, the way God did with you, the way God did with me, that we should in turn take that same approach to the lost. Uh, That's what it means to me to have a missionary heart. And I think that we see a very clear and powerful picture of what that looks like all the way at the beginning of humanity's story. Specifically, we see it at the beginning of the tragedy, the first tragedy in human history and in the human story, which is the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And right in the midst of that doom and that disaster, we actually see a beautiful picture of what it means to have a missionary heart, and we see that picture with our missionary God. So I want you to see this with me. In Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 8. And 
the little bit of the backstory here is at this point, Adam and Eve have already sinned. They've already taken the bait from Satan in the form of the serpent. And they instantly go from being shameless to being full of shame. They go from being innocent to being completely, utterly guilty. So what happens to them immediately. And what they found out is what is true for every one of us, which is that sin never delivers on its promises. Sin never delivers on its promises. And in fact, it always delivers the opposite of what it promises. It's always going to be true, every time. And they saw this firsthand. They experienced that firsthand. Hand. And they make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves because uh, they feel all of a sudden the shame of nakedness, which they had never felt before. And wrapped up in that is something more than just, oh, I realize I have no clothing. I mean, it was more than that. They were pretty smart people. It wasn't that. It was they realized something was missing. The comfort that they had experienced before was gone. The lack of insecurity and self-consciousness that they, they had had, they didn't have that before. Now, once sin has entered the picture, they experience self-consciousness. They experience insecurity. They experience fear. They experience vulnerability in a way they never had before. And their, their attempt at remedying that is, well, we've got to do something. Let's get these fig leaves and see if we can cover ourselves with that. And it was futile. It was empty, but that's all they had. Then this takes place, starting at verse 8. After that was all done, then the man and his wife, the Word of God says, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And there's no way this was the first time that happened. This was obviously a regular occurrence. This was a, a set activity. This was a regular scheduled part of their day. And how awesome would that have been, right? To have creation um, meet with the Creator every single evening, right at that, that wonderful time of the day and that evening breeze. Think of summertime, um, where it's that wonderful twilight, evening breeze moment of the day, and you can just sit on your porch and you know, watch the, the fireflies come out and hear the tree frogs doing their song. It's just a great time of day, right? And at this point in the day, probably from the very beginning up till this point, God would come and he'd walk with Adam and Eve. He'd fellowship with them. They'd talk, they'd converse, they'd spend time together intimately, personally. Wow. How amazing. But this time, it was different. This time, everything had changed. Look, look at what happens. Instead of eagerly meeting with him, instead of running to meet him when they hear the sound of him coming through the leaves and the bushes like they normally would, hey, God's here, let's go. Instead of that happening, like all the other times before, it was, God's coming. What, what are we going to do? When they heard the sound of the Lord God, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
sin always isolates and alienates. Always. Every time. And the first aspect of that isolation and alienation happens between the sinner and God. Happens between, between us and God. Whenever we sin, from the time we're, we're little up till now, when, when we're grown, when we're adults, when we're in the later years of our life, it doesn't matter. Any time we choose sin, we isolate and alienate ourselves from God. That's the whole reason Christ had to come, is because there was a great isolation and a great separation that, that occurred, and it started here between God and their creation. And it also affects the relationship with one another. Sin, first and foremost, most importantly, it alienates and isolates us from God, but it also alienates and isolates us from one another. It affects our relationships together as well. It forces us deep into ourselves. And it it causes us to want to avoid fellowship. And it causes us to want to draw within. So sin always isolates and alienates. And it always results in shame and insecurity. And we see that pictured here with Adam and Eve. That's that's why they're, they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And it's why they're hiding among the trees. Because they know they can no longer enjoy God the way they did. They know they they have nothing to stand before Him with that He could accept. They know something has changed. The level of their nakedness goes beyond the physical. And it it is to them what they understand and, and feel and quickly get is that that level of intimacy... That level of communion, that level of perfect fellowship and harmony and beautiful, holy relationship that they had enjoyed with God, it's been stripped of them. They're stripped of it now. And so all they have between them and God is this this new thing called sin. It's this barrier they had never experienced before. And it leaves them feeling completely exposed and naked before a holy God. And in desperation, they put fig leaves around them. And they go to hide amongst the trees because they're that desperate to avoid contact with their Creator. And that's what happens with all of humanity. That's exactly what's going on all through our society and our culture. That's what is on display with the the horrible drug epidemic that we see all around us every single day. It's people trying to cover up themselves and, and what they lack and their insecurities, which sin always produces. It's trying to fill the holes in their lives, the inadequacies that they are very much aware of. They're trying to plug those and fill those with the drugs and with the substances and with the addiction. And it's just like trying to cover yourselves with fig leaves. It's not going to work. It's going to be empty. So what's going on with, with all the push for the LGBTQXYZ thing? That whole platform and that whole push. It's not, it's not even really about people who identify as homosexual. It goes beyond that. It's the search 
to fulfill themselves with something that can never be fulfilled with anyone or anything other than God. Sin lies. Sin says you need more than God and I can give it to you. And then when you buy that lie, you realize, oh, it didn't deliver on its promise. And what I have instead is everything it didn't promise. And then you're left with trying to to cover up the examples all over you of failure and weakness and disappointment. And when you're forced to be confronted with your own failure and your own emptiness and your own disappointment and your own discouragement and your failure to measure up to God's holy standard, if you continue to fail to turn to Him, then your only recourse is to run from Him. And that's what we see on display all throughout history, from this point all the way up till today. It's an attempt to hide yourself from God, is, is what we see left and right of us. And it's what's true of all of us. When we, even as believers, when we still choose to sin, and in those moments where we fail to confess that sin, and we fail to repent, we feel it. We feel that same tension that same shame that we see here with Adam and Eve. We feel the desire to run from God rather than toward Him. We feel the the urge to try to cover up our sin and our shame rather than confronting it and bringing it out into the light so that God can make it right again. It's always the cycle that takes place with sin. But that wasn't the end of the story, thankfully. What we see is God entering into the sinfulness of his creation right here. You know, we often think of God entering into the sinful aspect of creation and, and coming into where man is in their sinfulness. We, we think of that um, around the incarnation and around Christ coming, around the Christmas narrative. And certainly that's the fullest expression of that happening. But we see it right here at the beginning. We don't have to wait till Luke 2 to see God intervening and entering in to the sinfulness of his creation and trying to do something about it. We see it right here. Look at what happens. Verse 9 of Genesis 3. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden... And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Remember, sin always isolates, it always alienates, it always results in shame and insecurity, and and Adam is acknowledging that. God answers him, verse 11, then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? That I commanded you not to eat from? And obviously, this was not God needing answers that he didn't already have. This was not God asking questions uh, because he just really didn't know. Of course not. He knew what had happened from the very moment it happened, he knew before it happened. He knew right where Adam and Eve were. He knew why they were hiding. So it wasn't asking so that he could find out what in the world was going on. It was asking so that 
Adam would honestly and openly admit and acknowledge his sin for the purpose of being forgiven of that sin, for the purpose of having the now damaged, separated, segmented, fragmented relationship restored. It was God drawing Adam out into the light from the darkness of sin in which he was trying to hide, bringing him and his choices into the light so that he could deal with it, so that that relationship could start to be restored and repaired and rebuilt. That's what was going on here. This was God mercifully, graciously, lovingly, pursuing Adam and Eve right in the middle of their sin, right in their lostness, drawing them out with love and with truth so that he could restore them to himself. God didn't have to do this. God could have, at the moment Adam and Eve sinned, at the moment that they gave in to Satan's tactics, God could have said, oh, well, that's it. I'm done. They're on their own now. No more me coming to them. No more me pursuing them. Our relationship is damaged and that's how it's going to be. And that's just fine. He could have done that. He could have stayed right where he was. But no, God, even after they chose sin over him, he came right to them, right where they were. He still came through the garden for their evening stroll. And he came right to where they were right to their place of hiding, and instead of the wrath and fury and judgment that we would expect and that they deserved and that we all deserve, instead of giving them that, he gave them grace and love and the truth about their condition. And he gave them the chance to confess and acknowledge and to come back into relationship with him. Why did he do that? Why did God probe Adam this way? Why was he trying to get him to answer honestly and directly about what he had done? Well, it's because, as 1 John tells us, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if anyone says he does not have sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sin... That means admit to God and acknowledge before Him our sin and agree with Him on what sin is. If we do that, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is is here drawing Adam into that, that place of confession for the purpose of forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. We know that, unfortunately, Adam didn't do that. Adam and Eve went through a couple rounds of the blame game together. Adam, uh, amazingly, and this shows just what sin does, it it doesn't take long to pollute our entire way of thinking and and warp our mindset. And uh, he, he immediately blames God and his wife. He says, well, the reason I did this is because of this woman you gave me. That's why I I chose to do what I did. That's why I sinned. Yeah, you got me, God. I sinned, but it's, it's this woman, which, by the way, I didn't create. You did. You know, and then he, he looks at Eve and he says, oh, is this true? And then she passes the blame. It's the serpent. So God kind of plays along a little bit and he stops at the serpent 
And he says this in verse 15, Genesis 3:15. Amazing, amazing statement here. Talking directly to Satan in the form of the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is an an odd statement if you don't know anything else about it. But what makes this so significant is this is God right in the midst of mankind's first epic failure the original sin taking place here. This is God looking forward through time and proclaiming the provision of restoration in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is God saying to the enemy, well, I I guess you think you're pretty good, right? I guess you think you've gotten a victory here, but let me tell you, you haven't, you don't. Whatever victory you think you've gotten here will be very short-lived because what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring through her seed the ultimate provision, the ultimate restoration, and the ultimate victory. Yeah, you're going to wound him. You'll give him a wound. He's going he's gonna to feel the effect of what you try to bring about and, and your strategy to, to have him done away with. Yeah, he's going to feel a wound inflicted, but it's not going to be a permanent wound. But in contrast, what he does through his enduring of the pain of the cross will bring about your sure and permanent demise. So through the coming of the Messiah, foretold here, prophesied here, right in this Interaction, God pronounces permanent victory for the sinner. And though they are definitely down right now, God is saying, you don't have to stay down, and I'm going to make it possible for you to rise up in victory, to know me perfectly again, and to be free of what you have done here. You won't stay in this condition forever because of the seed of woman that I'm going to bring about. Incredible. Fantastic. This is God pursuing the sinner. This is a missionary heart on display. And after he goes about uh, giving some more pronouncement of judgment for the uh, sin in which Adam and Eve committed, the results of their sin, he, he talks about the fact that the ground is going to be cursed and Nature around them is going to be cursed. They are going to be cursed. Dying, they will die. And he goes through all that. And then right before he expels them out of the garden, there's another incredible statement and picture here. It's, it's bittersweet. It's beautiful and terrible at the same time. Verse 21. Look with me at that. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So here's God again with grace and gentleness and the compassion of a father. Here is God saying to Adam and Eve, these these." Aprons of fig leaves that you have on you. There is no way this is going to cover you. 
There's no way that you doing this for yourself is going to give you what you need. I'll, I'll give you what you need. Yeah, you need covering. But it's going to have to be a whole lot better than this. And it's going to have to be something that you can't bring about on your own. I'll clothe you. And where did he get the clothes from? How did he make the clothes? It says from skins. Obviously, that would have been from animal skins. There in the garden. And so you go from the beauty of God tenderly providing for Adam and Eve what they need right there in the moment to the tragedy and the agony and the solemnness of the fact that that means an innocent animal had to be killed to make those coverings for them. An animal that Adam and Eve would have both known very well. Remember, Adam, his main task when he was created, when he was given authority over the garden, was to name every animal. God brought the animals to him to see what Adam would call them. And it wasn't just classification. The idea there is naming them as you would a cherished pet. There was companionship there. That went deep before Eve came around. That was the companion that Adam had. It was the animal. And so this would have been, no doubt, an animal that that Adam would have named and known and cared for. We don't know how long uh, they were in the garden before they gave in to the temptation, before they sinned. But it didn't really matter. It wouldn't have taken long for that companionship to be established. So here's an animal that Adam would have known and cared for that was innocent of sin. It's not like the animal gave in to the serpent and the animal took the fruit and the animal sinned and rebelled against God. That's not what happened. That was Adam and Eve. But now the innocent has to die to provide covering for the guilty. And you see it, don't you? The picture. You see what this is pointing to, don't you? The giant arrow pointing to the cross of the one promised. This is the first picture and shadow of an atoning sacrifice. Which is necessary. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. That's what God is communicating right here. And Adam and Eve see firsthand the depth and the gravity and the weight and the seriousness and the consequence of their sin. Not only does it affect their relationship with God, but it also affects other people and other things and other circumstances around them. Sin has only the power to destroy and it does it very, very well. But God. But God. But God steps in And triumphs over it every time. But God provides, even in our failure, what we need. But God provides grace and mercy, even when we have rebelled against Him. Even when we have broken His heart, He comes to restore our heart. And that's what we see here in a a beautiful way. God taking an innocent animal, killing it, And from it making the covering for Adam and Eve, which would be a reminder for them of two things as long as they wore that. One, God is gracious. 
God provides what we need even when we don't deserve it. But two, sin always causes death. And those reminders would have been literally around them and on them. But don't miss the beauty of it as well. Don't miss the beauty and the necessity of the atonement that not just Adam and Eve needed, pictured here in this very temporary manner, but the atonement that we all, you and I, needed in the permanent manner through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what every person needs. Every single person needs that, that hope and that promise and that provision. And that's why the Great Commission is so important, and that's the driving force behind the Great Commission. That's, that's why it's applicable to your Jerusalem, right where you are, right in your own community. That's why it's applicable to Judea and Samaria, your, your state and your region and, and your nation. And that's why it's applicable to the uttermost parts of the earth, because every human needs to know that only in Jesus Christ will they find what they need. And only in Jesus Christ is the provision for all of their weakness and inadequacy and all of their sin that nothing will ever be able to cover and do away with, that all the answer for their shame and their guilt and insecurity is found in Jesus. That's the message of reconciliation that once you and I have received, we are to go out and proclaim it and share it. This is the missionary heart that we see first in God that we who come to God are supposed to have and go and carry out and put on display for everyone around us. Everyone that we come in contact with should see the same kind of missionary heart that we see here with God, a heart of pursuit. A heart that pursues the lost and the sinner right where they're at and pursues them with love and with grace, and with truth. Just like you and I were pursued, we need to go and pursue. But more on that next week. We'll we'll go into more detail on that as we continue on in our series. What I want to leave you with is, is this question. It's the same question that God asked of Adam, and it's the same question that he asks of every single person that's ever born in every time, in every age, in every economic position, every social class, every cultural background, the question is the same. Where are you? Where are you? So my question to you is that, where are you today in relation to God? Are you hiding in the trees, thinking that that's going to conceal you and all of your shame and all of your guilt? That, that tree might look like different things to different people. And so whatever that is for you, I, I don't know. Maybe your tree that you're hiding in is drugs and alcohol and other forms of addiction. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's putting all your attention and all your focus on yourself, just making more of, of your, own, your own legacy. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's stuff and possessions. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But are you, are you hiding in a, in a tree of some sort like Adam and Eve tried to foolishly do? Thinking that maybe, just maybe God won't really see you. Maybe you can avoid coming to terms with him. 
if you just keep hiding? Are you trying to cover your, your sin and your guilt and your shame and your insecurity and your emptiness by putting little fig leaves on? It's never going to work, just like it didn't for Adam and Eve. It's never, it might cover for a little while, but it will never conceal. And something about fig leaves, I don't know, I've never tried to wear them, but apparently they are itchy and irritating and messy. Good reminder of sin, right? So where are you and what are you trying to wear? You trying to hide from God? Are you trying to cover it up with a temporary, futile way of concealing what can never truly be concealed? If that's you here today, the good news is you don't have to remain in that state. You don't have to stay in the trees and you don't have to be limited to continually trying to cover yourself up with figs, fig leaves. You have the ability to step out into the light where God is, to admit and acknowledge before him what he already knows, which is you are a sinner before him and you're in need of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And when you do that, no matter what you've done or where you've been, then what God does in place of those fig leaves that you're wearing is he puts on you robes of the righteousness of his son. He clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He takes away those those useless fig leaves and he takes away your shame and he takes away your insecurity and he takes away your failure and he takes away your misery and he wraps instead favor around you and love and eternal acceptance and grace and position and honor all in and through Jesus Christ all because of his atoning sacrifice. Have you embraced that yourself today? If so, praise God. Hallelujah. But don't sit on it. What you've received, what you've been given, don't just sit on it. Don't keep that to yourself. Go out, pursue the lost the way you were pursued, and proclaim that over them. Because that's what we're all called to do once we have come to God. And once we've been made new... We are called to go out and pursue others to bring them to him so he can do the same thing. But like I said, more on that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in your word that you are a true missionary God who has from the very beginning been on a rescue mission. As soon as we rebelled, and I say we because we are right there with Adam and Eve. We share our first parents' sin. We share their rebellion. And as soon as we sinned against you, as soon as we rebelled, the human race, you were right there in pursuit with love and with grace and with truth, saying, come to me, I'll give you what you need. Come to me, I'll make this right. Come to me, though we are separated, I can bring us together. Though you are broken, I can restore you. Thank you for the beautiful picture that 
You, you are a God of, of pursuit. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for pursuing me. Not just for salvation, but after salvation. You keep pursuing God. You keep convicting and, and, and causing us to admit and acknowledge where we sin so that our relationship can be restored again. Thank you for being that loving and that gracious. And Father, those of us who have already come into that relationship with you through Jesus and have experienced your mercy and your grace, Father, may we never grow tired of it. May we never cease to be amazed by it. And may we never stop to be motivated to go out and pursue the lost the way you pursued us. Help us to do these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.